From New York, this is Democracy Now! What about the idea that um, we should think about democracy, think about the right of the people to elect uh, candidates of their choice? The reason we're here is that President Trump tried to disenfranchise 80 million Americans who voted against him, and the Constitution doesn't require that he be given another chance. Can Donald Trump be barred from running for president for engaging in an insurrection? That's the case before the Supreme Court. We'll speak with the nation's justice correspondent, Ellie Mistel. Then, senior Biden administration officials traveled to Michigan to meet with Arab American and Muslim leaders about the war in Gaza. Senior officials uh, travel to, uh, to Michigan, and they are obviously traveling today to hear directly from the community, to hear directly from community leaders on a range of issues that are important to them, obviously, as well, uh, uh, not just them, but their families, including the conflict that, that we're currently seeing in Israel and Gaza. We'll speak with Michigan's highest-ranking Arab or Muslim leader, Representative Abraham Ayash, who was at the meeting. And we'll speak with Palestinian-American community organizer Leila Al-Abid, who's spearheading a campaign urging people to vote for uncommitted in Michigan's upcoming primary. She's the sister of Michigan Congressmember Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American member of Congress. Then we go to Pakistan, where early election results show a tight race in an election marred by accusations of vote rigging. We'll get the latest. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. In southern Gaza, Israeli snipers gunned down at least 21 people in Khan Yunus as they tried to reach Nasser Hospital. Al Jazeera reports Israeli soldiers are, quote, shooting at every moving object near the hospital. In northern Gaza, the Al-Quds hospital has been under fire from Israeli tanks. UNICEF has warned an escalation of Israel's attacks in Rafah will cause hunger and disease to skyrocket. Over half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million people have taken refuge in Rafah after Israel claimed it was a, quote, safe zone. There are more than 600,000 children in the area. Gaza is already experiencing the worst levels of child malnutrition in the world. This comes as a U.N. committee said it will review Israel's abuses of children's rights. The rights of children living under the state of Israel's effective control are being gravely violated at a level that has rarely been seen in recent, recent history. In the Jabalia refugee camp, Gazans dug through rubble in a desperate search to find any source of water. I don't know what to tell you. It's a hopeless situation. Instead of getting some rest, we dig under the rubble there. This water line, for your information, we dug it out from under the rubble. We kept digging until we found water. We're back to the Stone Age, 30, 40, 50,000 years ago. We dig water out, filter it from sand, and use it for cooking. We're asking all Arab countries and everyone to figure out a solution because this is not a solution. We die every day, every minute, every second. Meanwhile, the United Arab Emirates is hosting a meeting of Arab nations in a bid to prevent an escalation of a larger regional conflict. The family of two Palestinian-American brothers say the pair, their Canadian father and three other relatives, have been detained after an Israeli raid on their home in Gaza. The brothers, Borak and Hashem al-Agha, are aged 18 and 20. 
National Security Spokesperson John Kirby says the U.S. will talk to Israel about the detention of the brothers, as well as Samahir Ismail, a Palestinian-American woman from Louisiana, who was forcibly taken by Israeli soldiers in the occupied West Bank earlier this week. Meanwhile, in the United States, Texas police say the Sunday stabbing in Austin of 23-year-old Palestinian-American Zakaria Dwar was a hate crime. The Senate voted to advance a $95 billion military funding package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. The measure was stripped of border provisions after Republicans rejected an earlier bill that included an immigration crackdown that they themselves had demanded. Senators will now consider sending an additional $60 billion to Ukraine and $14 billion to Israel. In Illinois, prosecutors have dropped criminal charges against two Northwestern University students who published a mock school newspaper accusing Northwestern of being complicit in the genocide of Palestinians. The reversal comes after the parent company of the Daily Northwestern faced condemnation and the threats to boycott the paper. In labor news, the AFL-CIO has joined other unions in calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The AFL-CIO is the largest federation of labor unions in the U.S., representing some 12.5 million people. The special counsel investigating Joe Biden's handling of classified documents after his vice presidency has declined to charge Biden, despite finding the president, quote, willfully retained and disclosed classified materials. In his report, special counsel Robert Hur said a jury would be sympathetic to Biden and would view him as a, quote, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Hur made several other references to Biden's memory, which he called significantly limited. Biden later responded to questions about hers comments. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. Later, in the same news conference, Biden mistakenly referred to Egypt's Abdel Fattah al-Sisi as the president of Mexico. The Supreme Court appears poised to overturn Colorado's ruling, which disqualified Trump from the primary ballot for engaging in an insurrection. Both liberal and conservative justices expressed skepticism over Colorado's case. This is Justice Sonia Sotomayor. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, So whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. The Supreme Court's decision, expected in the coming weeks, will likely apply to any other state where efforts are underway to remove Trump from the ballot, such as Maine. In other primary news, on Thursday, Trump won the Republican primary caucuses in Nevada and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Nevada also held its Democratic caucus, which Biden won. In more election news, the Federal Communications Commission has banned AI-generated robocalls. In Pakistan, early results of Thursday's parliamentary election show independent candidates affiliated with jailed former Prime Minister Imran Khan in the lead. Cell phone and Internet services were cut off just as voting began, which opposition candidates denounced as another move by Pakistan's military-backed interim government to rig the election. We'll go to Pakistan for more later in the broadcast.
Russia's election commission has barred anti-war Putin challenger Boris Nadezhden from running in next month's presidential election. Authorities claimed around 15 percent of the signatures he collected for his candidate application were invalid, putting him below the threshold for qualification. Although President Vladimir Putin is widely expected to win the election, Nadezhden has emerged as the opposition's best shot. He's vowed to challenge his disqualification all the way to Russia's Supreme Court. You can take me off the elections. Okay, you can. But what will they do with the millions waiting for changes who disagree with the course the country is going? That's the problem. These people are not going anywhere. I will continue working further. We will be moving candidates for elections. We will be organizing a widespread movement. Brazil's federal police has confiscated former President Jair Bolsonaro's passport as he faces accusations of plotting a military coup to overturn his election loss to Luis Inácio Lula da Silva in 2022. Federal agents carried out 33 searches and four arrests tied to the case Thursday. Bolsonaro and his allies are accused of spreading disinformation about voter fraud, recruiting military officials to support a coup, and encouraging far-right protesters to storm government buildings to prevent Lula from taking office. In Haiti, police killed five environmental protection agents Wednesday amid escalating protests demanding the resignation of Prime Minister Ariel Henry and an aid to gang violence. Haitian police claimed the environmental agents opened fire first. Clashes were also reported throughout the capital, Port-au-Prince, with police firing tear gas and live bullets at protesters. We have no set course. We are on the streets until we succeed in uprooting these gangs at the head of state. U.S.-backed Prime Minister Henri became the de facto ruler following the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse in 2021. According to a 2022 agreement, Henri was supposed to hold elections and hand over power to the winner this week. But the elections were not held as planned, as Henri claimed he would schedule them only after the country's security situation improves. The U.N. is appealing for over $4 billion in aid for Sudan, which is facing some of the world's worst internal displacement and hunger crises after months of fighting between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support support forces. This is U.N. aid chief Martin Griffiths. There is a certain kind of obscenity about the humanitarian world, which is the competition of suffering. A competition between places. I have more suffering than you, so I need to get more attention, so I need to get more money. But I don't think there's anywhere quite so tragic um, in the world today as Sudan. The World Food Programme warned last week Sudanese people are dying of starvation as the conflict has cut off many people from accessing aid. This comes as 13 Sudanese asylum seekers died after their boat capsized off Tunisia's coast Wednesday. 27 other passengers were missing as of Thursday. The International Organization for Migration found more than 3,000 people drowned in the Mediterranean Sea while attempting to cross to Europe in 2023. 
And in related news, a Greek court has acquitted 16 humanitarian workers who helped rescue refugees in the Mediterranean in 2015 and 2016. They'd been accused of espionage and other charges in what has been condemned as the criminalization of humanitarian work. But the aid workers are not in the clear yet, as they still face a separate felony trial with charges including facilitating illegal immigration and money laundering. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nareen Sheikh, joined by Amy Goodman. Hi, Amy. Hi, Nareen, and welcome to our listeners and viewers around the country and around the world. Senior Biden administration officials traveled to Michigan on Thursday to meet with Arab American and Muslim leaders amid growing opposition to Biden's candidacy over his support for Israel's assault on Gaza. Michigan, which is an important swing state, is also home to the largest percentage of Arab Americans in the United States. Biden's campaign manager traveled to Detroit last month, but a number of Arab American leaders and elected officials declined to meet with her over the war in Gaza. Last week, Biden traveled to Michigan himself to meet with members of the United Auto Workers Union who endorsed him, but he did not meet with any Arab American leaders. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded to a question about the meetings in Michigan at a news conference yesterday. Senior officials uh, travel to uh, to Michigan, and they are obviously traveling today to hear directly from the community, to hear directly from community leaders on a range of issues that are important to them, obviously, as well, uh, uh, not just them, but their families, including the conflict that, that we're currently seeing in Israel and Gaza. This is a private meeting. Uh, wanna, we want to give them the space uh, to have a, a meeting that certainly has candor, uh, certainly where, both, uh, where we can hear directly from them. Uh, so don't want to get too far into what's going to be discussed, but we want to hear directly from them. We want to hear their concerns. Uh, we believe it's important uh, for, for, uh, for uh, these leaders to be, uh, to be able to speak directly to uh, officials in the White House. Among the people who met with Biden administration officials yesterday was Michigan House Majority Floor Leader Abraham Ayash. He's the state's highest ranking Arab or Muslim leader. Representative Ayash is among over 30 elected officials in Michigan who've signed on to a Listen to Michigan campaign and pledged to vote uncommitted in the state's primary on February 27th. Representative Ayash joins us now from Detroit. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Representative Ayash. If you could tell us who was present in this meeting and what were your demands to them? Uh, thank you for having me. There were several meetings throughout the day. Uh, we had folks from the National Security Council. Uh, Samantha Power was present, as well as other folks from the Biden administration and the State Department. Uh, and the conversations were very frank. Uh, I know many of us did not spare any time or word in terms of discussing what, what we need. And the conditions that we laid out are simple. Uh, we are expecting a permanent ceasefire. We want to see restrictions on and, and conditions on the military aid that Israel continues to receive right now without any conditions and without any restrictions or parameters. And we want to see a serious commitment for the humanitarian aid uh, to be sent to Gaza, as well as reinstating the funding for UNRWA. So uh, we were clear that unless these demands are, are going to be initiated, then we have no interest in continuing the conversations with the White House, because uh, now is not the time for posturing. Uh, I would be remiss to not mention that 
This meeting happens 19 days before the presidential primary here in Michigan. Let's talk about that, State Representative Ayash. And you're extremely significant as the number two person in the House in Michigan. And again, as Nermeen said, the highest ranking Arab American and Muslim leader in Michigan. Um, this meeting where original meeting with the campaign manager for President Biden, you chose not to meet with her. He has sent out a whole group, including Samantha Power, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, now head of USAID, and Tom Perez, former labor secretary. This clearly has shaken the White House, the level of protests when he was getting the endorsement of the UAW, UAW workers holding up um, signs calling for a ceasefire. Talk about why you decided to have this meeting and not um, uh, boycott the invite and also what they had to say to you about where President Biden stands on a ceasefire. So there was no direct commitment on, on the ceasefire, but what I will say is uh, when they invited us to meet with the campaign manager, we rejected it because this is not the time to engage on electoral politics, particularly when you see 30,000 innocent folks that have been murdered at the hands of weaponry that uh, our U.S. taxpayer money has unfortunately funded. So the conversation was very clear that we need to have a serious uh, framework for us to say, the United States should lead with moral clarity and fight for peace, and that we are not going to engage about this in any sense through electoral politics. Palestinian life should not be measured simply in poll numbers, but on the basis of their humanity. And that's what we reiterated to them. And anytime there's an opportunity to engage to help shift the policy, we're going to try to do that. And that was what yesterday's attempt was. And now the ball is in the president's court and the White House's court to see what they will do. After hearing our concerns, they can no longer say, well, we didn't know. We had very robust, very frank discussions with them, and uh, they know where we stand. And now the question is, are they going to heed the call of their constituents and do something that a majority of Americans and Democrats support in demanding for a ceasefire and an end to the violence? Michigan is a key swing state, and the Arab American and Muslim community is key to the votes for President Biden. Um, you're part of a larger effort uh, to vote uncommitted in the February primary in Michigan. Can you explain why you've made that decision? And if you addressed this yesterday with Biden administration officials. <laughs> But we made it very clear with them that there would be no engagement on electoral politics at this moment, and we were not going to entertain that. But uh, as far as February 29th, 27th, rather, for the Michigan presidential primary, we are going to remain uncommitted. And the reason why we're doing that is because we need to let the White House know that they have an opportunity in this moment to earn the votes. As an elected official, I can tell you, when I run for office, I don't say, well, the other guy's worse than me. I give them a message and a platform for why I'm running. And we expect the White House and President Biden to do the same. And the expectation is we are letting him know from now. It's February. The election is in November. But we are letting him know now that we are uncommitted to his presidency until we see some changes in the policies that have affected both Americans here and so many abroad, as well as their families in the Gaza Strip.
Well, I'd like to bring in uh, Leila Al-Abid, uh, a Palestinian-American community organizer from Dearborn, Michigan, and a leader of the Listen to Mission ca campaign, which is urging constituents to cast a vote for uncommitted on Michigan's February 27th uh, primary election in protests against President Biden's ongoing support for Israel's war on Gaza. El Abed is also the younger sister of Congress member Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American member of Congress. Leila El Abed, welcome to Democracy Now! If you could begin by explaining why you decided to lead this campaign. Um, well, personally, as a Palestinian-American and somebody who, um, from the age of 12, saw the power of electoral politics within our Arab-American and Muslim community, um, I knew that I wanted to be part of something that could possibly affect change. And the Uncommitted Campaign in Michigan is part of a larger anti-movement, uh, anti-war movement across the country. Uh, and we're focused on ending uh, ending a war and stopping the military funding that supports genocide. Well, I'd like to turn to comments that uh, President Biden made while speaking at the White House last night. After he addressed the special counsel's report on his handling of classified information, Biden responded to a question on Israel's assault on Gaza. I'm of the view, as you know, that... The conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been um, over the top. Leila Alabed, if you could respond to what President Biden said and and what you hope will come out of this campaign. Um. That was his comments were still not a call for a ceasefire or for the reevaluation of military aid um, to Israel that is committing a genocide and an ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and until that happens, um, we cannot trust Biden um, and we cannot uh, commit our votes to him. Let's put the question to State Representative Abraham Ayash. Um, if you can respond to what the Biden administration is now saying, President Biden, Tony Blinken, just back from his Mideast trip, um, are not calling for a ceasefire, but Blinken's talking about a pause, but they are warning uh, Netanyahu about a ground assault on Rafah. Can you talk about the significance of this? I mean, the area you come from in Michigan um, and Layla coming from Dearborn, one of the largest Arab American communities in the United States. You represent uh, State Representative Ash, so many uh, people who have family in Gaza right now. What that kind of ground assault would mean? Uh, it is it is it would be devastating one for the people, but I think more importantly, more importantly, I think the broader conversation is we need to make sure that uh, if this happens, that the American people are very aware of what is what is going to be the message in, in, in November. But we are going to keep having that conversation and letting them know. But at this point, it's clear to them that we have made it our mission and our message that where we stand on this is very clear. Uh, we are a community that is demanding peace, and we expect it to be that way. 
Representative Abraham Ayash, a second-ranking Democrat in the Michigan House, thank you so much for joining us. And Leila Al-Abid, Palestinian-American community organizer from Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, when we come back, can Donald Trump be barred from running for president for engaging in an insurrection? That's the case before the Supreme Court. We'll speak with the nation's justice correspondent, Ellie Mistel. Getting Nowhere Fast by Girls at Our Best. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh, joined by Amy Goodman. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a historic case Thursday to determine if Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump is eligible to stay on the ballot for the 2024 election. The justices are reviewing a decision by Colorado's high court that found Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution makes Trump ineligible to run for office because he engaged in an insurrection on January 6, 2021. A ruling would come within weeks. Before a packed courtroom, both liberal and conservative judges expressed skepticism over Colorado's case. This is Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Meanwhile, Liberal Justice Justice Kitanji Brown-Jackson appeared to agree with Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell's argument, that the 14th Amendment's disqualification provision does not apply to all insurrectionists, but only to people who swore to support the Constitution as an officer of the United States, which does not include the president. So the that first is. argument the is we have a list of offices yes. that a person is barred from uh, uh, holding, right, yes. under your theory or under the, the language. Mm -hmm. of, and we see it begins with senator, representative, elector of elector. president and vice president, and all other civil or military officers. Uh, so offices, offices, offices under the United offices States. Offices under the United States. But the word president or vice president does not appear, uh, not appear specifically That's in right. that list. So I guess I'm trying to understand, are you giving up that argument? And no. if so, why? No, we're not giving it up at all. You're right. The president and the vice president are not specifically listed. 
But the Anderson litigants claim that they are encompassed within the meaning of the phrase office under the United States. And do you agree that that, um, the framers would have put such a high and significant and important office, sort of smuggled it in through that catch-all phrase? We don't agree at all. That's why we're still making the argument. That's Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell, questioned Thursday by Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And this is conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh challenging Colorado's attorney, Jason Murray. Last question. In trying to figure out what Section 3 means, and to the extent it's elusive language or vague language, what about the idea that um, we should think about democracy, think about the right of the people to elect uh, candidates of their choice, of letting the people decide, because your position has the effect of disenfranchising uh, voters to a significant degree. This case illustrates the danger of refusing to apply Section 3 as written, because the reason we're here is that President Trump tried to disenfranchise 80 million Americans who voted against him, and the Constitution doesn't require that he be given another chance. For more on this and other cases Trump is facing, we're joined by Elie Mistal, the nation's justice correspondent. His new piece is headlined, The Supreme Court is Not Going to Save Us from Donald Trump. He's the author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Elie, if you could just begin by responding uh, to yesterday's oral arguments. Yeah, it was a disaster. Um, Apparently, the Constitution does not matter if it makes Republicans sad. Um, the, the, the idea, and it's so important that you guys, I think, earlier highlighted the Bolsonaro story, right? Because look at what Brazil is doing when their uh, former president threatened their government, right? They took my man's passport away, right? That's not what we do here, apparently. We don't defend ourselves, apparently. And yesterday's Supreme Court argument involved nine justices, three appointed by Republican presidents, but, but sorry, six appointed by Republican presidents, but three appointed by Democratic presidents, kind of locking arms and deciding to ignore the Constitution, ignore the plain text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which clearly states that insurrectionists cannot run for, for office. They decided to lock hands and ignore that because it would be too messy for the country to apply the law to Donald Trump. That's what happened yesterday and was very disappointing to listen to. I mean, it's fascinating, Ellie, when you look at who Jason Murray is, right? The lawyer for Colorado that is trying to keep Trump from the ballot as an insurrectionist. He both clerked for Elena Kagan, a liberal justice, and for Neil Gorsuch, right, the justice from Colorado. Mm-hmm. And and both uh, Gorsuch and Kagan lit him up um, yesterday. Uh, Kagan was extremely concerned. The first sound that you played wasn't Sotomayor. It was actually Kagan. And as you played, Kagan was extremely concerned with the ability of Colorado to kind of on its own exclude Trump from the ballot and the, the knock-on effect that would have in all the different states. The best way that I can explain the liberal position or, or why the liberals took the position that they did is that I would say Kagan, Jackson, Sotomayor to some extent, they were more concerned with a red state, a, a, red, a Republican legislature, a Republican governor kicking somebody like Joe Biden off the off the presidential ba- ballot 
for bad faith reasons that they were willing to stop Colorado from kicking Trump off the ballot for good faith reasons. And while I get that calculus um, as a real politique method, it is a problem when your legal decisions, when your legal rulings are based on what you think the bad faith guys will do with it, right? Like, that's a problem if the law gets reduced to, like, oh, my God, what will Ron DeSantis do? Like, that that's not a good way to run a country, but that is the way that we saw the, the liberals want to want to play it yesterday. And I think the other point, uh, Amy, that, that's worth mentioning, you brought up uh, who the lawyer um, for the Colorado side was. Let's let's not forget who the lawyer for the Trump side was, right? Let's not forget who Jonathan Mitchell is. He is he is the uh, former Texas Solicitor General who is most famous for inventing Texas's SB8, the bounty hunter law that allows people to pursue abortion providers in Texas that effectively overruled Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade. That's the guy. The Trump campaign dragged out to make their argument that he should stay on the ballot. And that's the guy that apparently all nine justices found a way to agree with yesterday. So I also wanted to ask you about the line of questioning of Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and the whole issue of what it means to be an officer in the 14th Amendment. And also talk about the history of this case, why Colorado invoked it going back to the Civil War, what it means for an insurrectionist to run for office. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the double edged sword sword of, of Justice Jackson, right? She is fantastic, um, extre- you know, amazingly smart. And she is a textualist, right? She is an originalist, a liberal version of those words, but she's the person who kind of goes toe to toe with Neil Gorsuch whenever they want to talk about the original public meaning of this or that, right? She's the one who goes right in to the, you know, Oxford English Dictionary to fight Gorsuch about the definition of what is, is, right? That, that, that's who she is. And that's great most of the time, right? But yesterday, <laughs> that those same, the, that intellectual consistency led her to what I think is a quite tortured place um, where she was parsing the word office versus offices, officer versus offices um, to try to find some way to not include President Trump. And the problem with that is that it's ridiculous, right? It is, it, it is just ridiculous as a matter of common sense to think that the people who said that you can't be a senator if you raised a rebellion against the government and you can't be a congressperson if you raised a rebellion against the government. But president, yeah, sure, that's fine. That, th- we don't have a problem with it. Like, that's a ridiculous argument, but that's, how, that's what she talked herself into. And again, I think she talked herself into that. I think the liberals generally talked themselves into that because they don't like the political reality of what the law says. They don't like the idea of kicking Trump off the ballot. They don't like what that means kind of as a presidential presidential value um, around the country. And so they twisted themselves into a pretzel to pretend that the law says something that it doesn't. 
Well, Ali, I want to ask you about the long-awaited ruling this week on Trump's claim to be immune from criminal prosecution, which you write about in your piece headline, The D.C. Circuit Just Shredded Trump's Immunity Claims. The court's decision should put to rest the question of whether a former president is immune to prosecution. The question is whether the Supreme Court will allow that, you wrote. So lay out how this three-judge panel unanimously rejected Trump's argument and what could happen next. Yeah. Speaking of stupid arguments, the argument that the president of the United States, once he is no longer clothed in power, is free to commit any crime he would like without without fear of prosecution. The idea that if a president of the United States commits crimes while he is in office, he is somehow immune from ever being prosecuted for those crimes, even when he's out of office. That is ridiculous. Nobody reasonable believes that. And the D.C. Circuit panel, the three-judge panel, two uh, two judges appointed by Democrats, one by a Republican, unanimously ruled that Trump was wrong on every single level of his argument. It was a total, like, what I called it was a bench slap. Um, um, they, 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 they destroyed that argument. As well, they should. It's a ridiculous argument. But does that end the issue? No, because remember, folks, Trump is not trying to win with this ridiculous immunity argument. He is trying to delay with this ridiculous immunity argument. He was due to be put on trial by Judge Tanya Chutkin and Prosecutor Jack Smith on March 4th. Then he started making this immunity argument. Well, then Judge Chutkin ruled that that immunity argument was wrong because, again, it is obviously wrong. But now he got to appeal, right? So that appeal took a month. Right. Took a month for the D.C. Circuit to write it. We are now we've moved. Judgekin has already moved back her March 4th trial day. Right. So what happens next? Well, he's going to take the D.C. ruling and appeal it to the Supreme Court. Now, again, when he gets to the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court takes this, takes it, he will lose again because his argument is ridiculous. And I think even even after what I heard yesterday, I do not think there are five justices up there who will say that the president is immune from that a former president is immune for prosecution. That's just not true. Right. So I don't think they're going to do it. But the question is whether or not they grant the case at all and whether or not they allow him to continue to delay the start of his trial while he makes this ridiculous argument. The court doesn't have to take the case. And if the Supreme Court does want to take the case, it doesn't have to grant a stay. It doesn't have to stop Judge Tanya Chutkin from moving forward with her trial. But if there are four or five conservatives willing to allow Trump to delay, willing to allow him to essentially hack the legal process to try to keep himself out of jail long enough to run for president again, then Trump will potentially be able to delay his trial into the summer, through the conventions, maybe even pass the next election, which is his whole game. Because the idea that he's actually going to win on this particular argument is never in the cards for him, and he knows it, and anybody rational knows it as well. Well, this week, Donald Trump renewed his request for the judge in his Georgia election interference case to disqualify Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis and dismiss the indictment, saying her, quote, egregious misconduct demands it. Willis has acknowledged she had a romantic relationship with the prosecutor she hired on the case, Nathan Wade. You have a piece for the nation headlined, the Fannie Willis scandal is bad, but it doesn't change her case against Trump. Explain what you mean, Ellie. Yeah, I don't think Fannie Wall should have done what she did. 
what she allegedly did, what she has uh, admitted to, even in, in, in some ways. I don't think that's a good look. I don't think she should have done that, right? But that's, I, I, I think that, that, that borders on unethical. But it has nothing to do with her ability to prosecute this case and the charges that she's brought against the 19 co-conspirators who tried to defraud the people of Georgia of their votes, right? It has nothing to, like her personal, I think, foibles have nothing to do with the prosecution of that case where, let us not forget, three people have already pleaded guilty to the charges that she brought. So we have to understand Fonnie Willis as a person who has professional responsibilities and a personal life. And her personal life, I think that was a mess. But her professional responsibilities are not in any way implicated by this particular scandal. There are different kinds of ethical, moral quandaries and scandals that potentially would implicate a prosecutor's ability to, 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 to move forward with the case. This ain't one of them. This is just a bad look, right? So the idea that you can go from this personal issue and overplay it to the point where now you have to dismiss the whole case and she is racist and it's it's ridiculous and 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 i don't think a judge will go for it but it's a bad look i wish he hadn't done it and ellie mistal we haven't talked to you for a while since the e Jean carroll case which really is significant a jury voting more than 83 million dollars for trump defaming e Jean carroll um, after another civil trial found him guilty of uh, sexually assaulting her. The judge saying in common parlance it was rape. But when the just before the jury found him liable for $83 million, um, Trump walked out of the closing arguments. Can you just summarize that case for us and where it's headed? Will he be paying this $83 million? Yeah, Trump's a bit of a baby, and he threw a tantrum when he had to pay up the money for running his mouth. Like, let's not forget, there was an initial trial. He was found liable for defaming her. He was ordered to pay her $5 million, and then he kept defaming her. And then he kept running his mouth about her, right? And so that's why you had the second trial, and now it's an $83 million payment. And I'll tell you one thing, Amy, he shut up about her now. He's made a lot of tweets, a lot of all-caps, anger tweets, haven't heard her name out of his mouth since the verdict, and that's the point. We perhaps finally found the price point that it takes to make Donald Trump shut up, and it's $83 million. I hope we all remember that figure. I hope other judges put $83 million fines on him to keep his mouth shut, because apparently that's what it takes. Will he have to pay it? You know, eventually. I'm not... I'm not an economist. I don't understand the GDP of Trump org and how exactly that works. He has to post a bond. I don't know if he has the money. I don't know if he's going to fleece his, you know, MAGA supporters to send them his their Social Security te- checks so he can pay off his legal fees. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. But I do know that the point was that he needed to shut up about her. And he has. Uh, finally, you know, we haven't talked to you since your debut on SNL. Or was that Keenan <laughs> Thompson? Let's let's take a look. <laughs> For the nation, do you think the media is overstating the negative sentiment of the election to get views and clicks? Well, that's an interesting question. Oh, is it? It's interesting. You, you, you find it interesting. 
Yeah, I do. Yeah, well, I find you interesting, okay? You look like if Don King ate another Don King. <laughs> I'm gonna unhinge my jaw and bite your head off like a goldfish cracker. So you made it, Ellen. You made it. How are you feeling today? <laughs> I'm obviously a huge fan of Barry Gibb. I feel like he was done wrong by Jimmy Fallon. Uh, um, look, it was it, it was it was a nice um, um, moment for for me. And and what I've what I've taken from that is that whatever the heck I'm doing, it seems to be working. So I should keep working and keep writing and keep uh, trying to explain how how our our our, our justice department and how our Supreme Court um, is deciding the rules that the rest of us have to live under. So next time we're going to look at the Supreme Court, do we have to have Kenan Thompson on? Oh, I hope so. I, I, if one thing could happen, if that, if I become in any small way a way for SNL to cover the Supreme Court a little bit more and to bring bring some knowledge to bear on its viewers that you know usually aren't listening to me about how the court actually operates and what it does in secret, then I, I, I will take every Don King joke they can throw at me um, if that's the upshot. Ellie Mistel, the nation's justice correspondent, thank you so much for joining us. We'll link to all your pieces. Uh, Ellie Mistel is also the author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Coming up, we go to Pakistan for the latest in the country's national election. Stay with us. <laughs> Suri by Ali Sethi and Shay Gill. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Narmeen Sheikh, joined by Amy Goodman. In Pakistan, independent candidates affiliated with imprisoned former Prime Minister Imran Khan are leading the country's elections as official results continue to come in. The results so far have come as a surprise to many, given observers, many observers, given the extent of support to PTI loyalists. Khan supporters have accused Pakistan's military-backed interim government of trying to rig the election by shutting down cell phone and internet services just as voting began and by delaying election results. Khan was disqualified qualified from running in Thursday's election because of criminal convictions he says were politically motivated. He was imprisoned in the run-up to the election. In a close second so far are candidates with the Pakistan Muslim League Party of three-time former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, who's backed by the military. Sharif returned to Pakistan in October after four years of self-imposed exile abroad to avoid serving pres- uh, prison sentences in corruption cases. Within weeks of his return, his convictions were overturned 
overturned, leaving him free to seek a fourth term in office. And coming in third so far is the Pakistan People's Party, led by Bilawal Bhutto Zardari. For more, we're joined by Alia Amir Ali, Pakistani political activist and organizer. She's a member of the left-wing Awami Perk- uh, Workers' Party, normally based in Islamabad, but joins us today from London, where she's a graduate student at the London School of Economics. And in Karachi, we're joined by Munize Jahangir, journalist and host of a political talk show on Pakistan's leading news network, where she's been covering the elections. She's also editor-in-chief of the digital media platform VoicePK.net. She's co-chair of the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Munize Jahangir, why don't we begin with you? Uh, tell us what about the election results, what you see coming in, the latest uh, news. I'm afraid we uh, seem to have lost uh, Munize. We'll uh, try to get back to her. Alia Amir Ali, if you could comment on what you see coming out of Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, the fact that the results are continue to pour in so slowly and are so delayed is itself uh, an indicator that whatever the results actually end up being, they're not particularly credible. Um, and so I think that irrespective of the results, the political crisis that that we're seeing in Pakistan is going to continue. Um, and I think it's worth remembering that, you know, in Pakistan, this is not unusual. Like elections have never been a straightforward affair where people just come out and make their will known. Um, I mean, it's worth remembering that that the first general elections in the country in 1970 were, in fact, um, you know, not just dismissed by the military establishment, but, you know, ended up uh, being the first time in history where a majority actually separated uh, from from a country. I'm referring to Bangladesh. And ever since then, I mean, elections in Pakistan have always been uh, a more or less controlled affair. What I think is different, though, about these elections and, and what has been happening successively in Pakistan is a... Um, and increasingly sort of this sort of military control over, um, you know, over Pakistan's political affairs is becoming increasingly tense and untenable. Uh, we're seeing this time, you know, there's this very large, young uh, and politicized electorate and also an increasingly divided electorate. I mean, if we look at sort of, you know, just voting patterns and and uh, sort of how people are approaching and how meaningful elections are in the center versus Pakistan's peripheries. There's, you know, the gulf, the political gulf between center and periphery uh, is increasing. And these elections are going to be, you know, are going to be a, a clear indicator of that. And and I think finally, like, you know, quite irrespective of uh, Imran Khan being the opposition, and I think uh, you know, at least the unofficial results that have been coming in over social media ever since yesterday do show that the PTI uh, has ha- has gotten a lot of seats. And perhaps the official results will not reflect that as accurately as perhaps the actual sort of uh, results have. But um, but I think what it's it's worth remembering that the PTI is basically composed of electables uh, who have been, who have belonged to different parties at different times and, you know, who have sort of jumped ship, let's just say, uh, from one party to the other in the past, who are basically local landlords, chieftains, 
um, businessmen um, and have been part of the political establishment for a very, very long time. So I think in terms of what Pakistan is facing, you know, its economic crisis, its climate crisis, the ecological crisis and then the political crisis in the peripheries, irrespective of who comes to power, uh, neither the military leadership nor the, any of these political parties seem to have a solution to this. OK, we seem to have gotten uh, Munize Jahangir back on the line. Munize, if you could uh, respond to what's happening, you were following the election minute by minute uh, for your own uh, uh, news program. What most struck you as results were coming in and what do you see today? What are the results so far? Well, one of the first things that is of immediate concern is that the results were supposed to be released this morning at 10 a.m. Now, uh, several hours later, we still do not have the results of this, the complete results of this general election. And there is no clarity on who is going to be forming government uh, in the center and who is going to be forming government in Punjab, simply because the symbol from the PTI, the Indran Khan back party, was taken away and as a result it threw up many independents. So right now in the league are uh, PTI back independent candidates that are 52 and then following close is Nawaz Sharif back PNLN um, uh, with, with 40 candidates and then there's the Pakistan People's Party of the Guttos with 19 candidates. So it's up in the air exactly uh, how many uh, seats uh, each party has got and whether the CPI will be allowed to uh, form a party and also, uh, you know, um, uh, continue in the National Assembly in the form of a political party, which means that they will then get reserved seats, which will shore up their majority and they will be in a clear position to then make government in the centre. They are claiming that they can make government in the centre and in the biggest province of, Punjab, uh, of, of Pakistan, which is Punjab. Uh, however, we have not seen the actual results. The problem in Pakistan has been that there was an election management system that was dependent on the internet. Now, internet signals went down, and earlier on, uh, there were certain government ministers who kept on saying that there was a terror threat, and therefore we will be shutting down the internet. When there was an outcry over, over that decision, the government, uh, the caretaker government backtracked and announced that they will in fact not be blocking the internet. But lo and behold, when everybody woke up in the morning to go and vote, the internet across Pakistan and data services across Pakistan was being blocked. Even as, as we speak now, and it is the second day of the election, and it's uh, 7 p.m. in Pakistan, we still do not have a proper signals across Pakistan. So as a result, uh, people were not able to get to the polling stations the way they wanted. People, there was a fear factor that settled in. Uh, having said that, we still saw a substantial turnout in this election. We still saw an eager voter wanting to go out and vote. We saw women come out um, in substantial numbers to come out and vote. And I think that was the biggest concern, that the people have spoken, they have voted uh, against a, uh, a party that was seen to be pro-establishment and voted for a party uh, you know, that was seen to be against the establishment. But are the results going to be accepted? We are now getting information and reports from the ground that returning officers, which were appointed by the election commission to deliver the results, uh, one of them in Lahore has been picked up. We do not know where he is. Um, uh, the candidate has cried foul and gone to the court. 
In other cases, we are seeing that the form that was supposed to be submitted, um, uh, they are showing different numbers. Uh, the initial forms that were submitted to the election commission, um, which the media had a, uh, got, got a handoff, which was called the Form 45, which the presiding officers were supposed to give the residing officers, they had a different outcome. And the one that the residing officers gave to the um, election commission has a different outcome. We are also receiving reports that the residing officers were confined to certain um, rooms uh, by the military. And of course, these are reports that are unconfirmed. But certainly, there are there is enough evidence to suggest that during the night, there was significant manipulation of the results as they were coming out. I want to go back to Alia Alamari, uh, who is in London right now, uh, but closely following the Pakistan elections. For a global audience, Alia, um, uh, who are not closely following politics in Pakistan, if you can explain to us how the system is working right now. We saw the violence in the lead up to the election, candidates gunned down, the telecommunications going down. Uh, you had um, PTI barred. So Imran Khan's party, Imran Khan, who has been jailed for corruption, uh, running as independents because the party is barred. Nawaz Sharif, Nawaz Sharif, who was imprisoned for a time, um, coming up second. Do you agree that all these independents that seem to be ahead now, they're saying the reason the results aren't in is because they're being tampered with. They're being finagled with. But for a global audience to put this election in context and where the military stands, the Pakistani military stands um, in uh, the middle of all of this, such a powerhouse in running Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As I said earlier, um, I think it's important to remember the history of um, you know, I prefer to use the term civilian rule rather than democracy because it literally is just the battle for, um, you know, elections to simply take place and their results to be accepted has been a constant struggle for Pakistan since its inception. Um, I mean, we have to remember that the first general elections took place in 1970. The country was created in 1947. We've still spent more than half of our political history under direct military rule. Um, and as I said earlier, like our, you know, where we began the 1970 elections, um, the results were not accepted and we lost more than half of the what was then, you know, Pakistan um, uh, as a result. And I think uh, what has happened over time is that the military uh, establishment has become more and more insecure um, and and that insecurity has meant uh, greater attempts to manipulate and control uh, not just the election electoral process and its technicalities, but there's a whole sort of foreplay that happens beforehand about and, and alliances that are made. And, you know, in Pakistan, it's 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 common knowledge for people to assume that governments are made um it's not that elections uh, don't like that people's votes Alia, you have don't 10 matter. seconds. 10 seconds. Okay. Um, so it's not that people's votes don't matter. It's just it's just that, you know, the military will certainly manipulate the results.
Ali Amir Ali, Pakistani political activist and organizer, thank you so much for joining us. Muniza Jahangir, journalist and host of a political talk show on Pakistan's leading news network. That does it for the show. I'm Nermeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. A happy early birthday to Messiah Rhodes. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Waranoff, Charina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, and Te Maria Estudio. Thank you so much for joining you. Joining you? Joining me.